Hello again. Thank you. Good response. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're continuing what we've called Romans part 1 as we kind of divide the book up into three major parts. Part 1 this semester, part 2 next semester, and then the summer finishing it out with part 3. Um, and what we've seen again and again in this first part of Romans is that Paul has been a little bit tough on us. He's pressed us quite a bit that we have a problem, that we all have a problem. We call this problem sin. Literally, the Greek word sin means to miss the mark. It means we've missed the goal of what God has designed us to be. Um, so we're actually calling it this week, as we get into uh, chapter 3, missing the goal. Uh, I want to thank Stephen Watson, who preached last week. He jumped in at the last minute for me, so I appreciate that. Did a great job. Uh, I was out. My uncle passed away. Um, so I appreciate your prayers. I know some of you all knew about that. I was in Oklahoma uh, doing the uh, burial service and part of the memorial service and everything up there. Um, and I just want to say, he was a, a godly man that loved the Lord. And of course, we grieved, uh, miss someone that we love, but we also celebrated his life. And just to take away every time I'm involved with a funeral where a life well lived is celebrated, just want to remind you guys as your pastor, um, we should start living now the way we want to live, you know? Just live the life now that you want to live. Live the life now that you want to be celebrated. Don't, don't waste time. Don't think, oh, well, once I get this taken care of, then I can live that life. But just, just start living that life now. So that, that's my little encouragement um, from dealing with that. Um, as we get into chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 9 through 20 tonight. Um, and it's going to be page 940. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles kind of spread around there for you. You can grab one of those. encourage you to crack it open uh, and follow along with where we are. Uh, I was joking with my aunt this weekend. Um, she was telling me that she was actually the best standing broad jump participant in her elementary school. Do you all remember that from elementary school? Where you would line up, and there'd be like a line here, and you would just jump. I'm not going to do it for you because I might get hurt. I'm too old for that. But you would just jump as far as you can, and then the PE teacher would measure it, right? And if you did enough other events, like you climbed a rope and hung from a bar and all these random things, then the president would write you some kind of fitness letter or award or something. Um, but it was, it was really interesting. We were joking with my aunt because she was like, I was a terrible athlete. Like, I was terrible at everything. I never got picked for anything. But I was the best long jumper. I was the best standing broad jump person at that school. And so we had a good laugh about it. And I was joking with her. I was like, that's crazy because I just last week was listening to a sermon on this scripture, on the passage we're looking at today, and a friend of mine was preaching the sermon, and he, he was using that as an illustration. He was using broad jumping, long jumping, as an illustration. And, and so I, I will, I'll kind of paint the picture of the scenario for you like this. What if we all just take a field trip out to the parking lot, and we measure how far you can jump? Would you all be up for that? Would that be cool? Um, I know. It'd be, all of you are like, sure, I don't want to sit here. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. You can do it on your own after the service, okay? But, but say, let's pretend that we did it, okay? Pretend that we did it, and I take the top 10%, the best jumpers in the room. Y'all are the champion jumpers, and I say, you guys are going to represent Grace Bible Church in a worldwide jumping competition. You'd be pretty stoked, right? And then I lay out more details, and I say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Grand Canyon, and you're going to go as our champion, and you're going to compete against people that are jumping from other churches. And you're going to try to jump across the Grand Canyon. And you would say, but Dave, I can't do that. And I'd say, no, you're the best jumper we've got, right? You jump so much farther than everybody else. And you'd say, but Dave, it's, it's not enough, right? That's not far enough. If you tried that, 
Like, say you could jump, I mean, I don't know what I could jump. Maybe I could jump four feet, right? Four feet? That's not, that's not going to cover the distance, right? And so what happens in religious circles is we often pride ourselves on our accomplishments in the religious community. We often think, hey, look at how far I've jumped with the spiritual things I've done. And, and Paul is going to say in this text, it's not enough. You're still failing to make the mark. You're missing the goal. None of you can jump that far. So let's look at the text, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So we all have the same problem. Sin is literally missing the mark, missing the goal. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's, he's telling us, we can't get there. We can't get there. And, and again, we've had a lot of weeks in Romans of being told we're sinners. You might be feeling beat up. I just want to remind you again that, that that feeling of desperation is meant to push you to the beauty of the gospel. And We're going to start hitting it hard next week, just the beauty of this Jesus who gave himself for us. And so recognizing you're sick is the road to getting healed, right? You, you can't, you're never going to take the medicine unless you think you're sick. And so Paul is working real hard to show us that we are spiritually sick, that we're missing the goal, we're missing the mark, we're not measuring up, so that we can receive the grace that Jesus has for us. So let me pray for us, and we'll uh, look at it in more, more depth. God, thank you that you love us so much. You gave us Jesus, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, to come uh, right up to that line of, of brokenness and despair and recognizing our neediness before you. But I pray that you would help us not to just stay there, God, help us not to beat ourselves up, but help us to, to rest in your arms, that you're good, and that you love us. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So as we start uh, moving through the text, I want to just kind of notice a contrast with last week's section. Um, so this first section, the big idea would be that religious people miss the goal, right? So he's picking on the Jewish people, the religious people, the people that have the revealed word of God, right? So we have a lot of similarities with the Jews of that day in that we are a people that have God's directions, his instructions, right? So we've got God's directions, and so we can relate somewhat to the Jews. Obviously, it's different. Most of us are not ethnically Jewish, and there's thousands of years, so there are some differences. But there's a sameness that we can relate to in that we are a people that have God's law. We have God's word revealed to us. And so the question would be, is there any advantage there? And last week, the passage that Stephen looked at in verse 1 and 2, it was said this way. In verse 1 and 2, it said, um, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, the mark of Jewishness? Much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the, the words of God, the prophecies of God. So he's saying, was there any advantage to being the religious person? To being the person that has God's law? If we're all sinners... 
why would you even want to be born into a family that has religion or has the Bible or has God's law? Is there any advantage at all? And Paul says, well, of course there's an advantage. Yes, you've got God's word. There's blessing there. So we want to make sure that we, we walk the correct balance because now Paul's going to say, are we any better off? No. Is there an advantage? Yes. Are we better off? No. So it sounds like maybe he's contradicting himself, but it's, it's two different lenses, right? It's how you look at it. So do you want your kids to grow up knowing the structure and the blessing of God's law? Yes, of course. Do you want them to think that that can save them? No, because the law can't save you, right? The law is like, I can jump two feet farther than you, but that doesn't mean I can jump all the way, right? If I keep seven of the commandments and you keep four of the commandments, I'm not saved. I might have more law in my life than you do, but I'm still not there, right? And so Paul is looking at it from two different perspectives. So yes, the law is good. It's beautiful. It gives structure to our society. Vote that God's law would be honored. Build your homes and your families that God's law would be honored. But recognize that, that that's still not enough. It's still not enough. We still lack perfection. So verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all the totality, both both Jews and Greeks, so those who have God's law and everybody else. Greeks is kind of a grab bag term here. He's not just talking about a few little islands in the Mediterranean. He, he just really means the people that think in the Greek world system out there, the Roman Empire system. So he's saying, specifically the Jews, people have God's law, base their life on it, and then everybody else out there, all the pagans. He's saying, are we better off? No, we're all in the same category. He uses the word specifically, we're all under sin. We're all under sin. So, the way one commentator talked about it is it's like a filing cabinet. You have a filing cabinet, and it's not like he says, here's the filing cabinet of the people that keep two commandments, and then here's the filing cabinet of the really impressive religious people that keep seven or eight commandments, and God's got two files. And you have special privileges because you keep eight commandments, but God kind of hates them more than he hates you because they only keep two commandments, right? Like those are two file drawers? No, he's saying we're all, all humans are in the same drawer, the same sin drawer, the same guilty drawer. We're, we're all in that same file. We're all filed under sin. So we're all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, now what he's going to do is he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to quote a lot of the Psalms and Isaiah here. And this is kind of harsh. He says in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And probably if you're like me, when you hear this, you want to protest, right? You want to open your mouth and speak up and say, Paul, I'm, I, I seek God. I do nice things. I'm a good person, right? I mean, I was an Eagle Scout. Come on. Um, I, do, I do good things. I'm a good citizen. I've planted trees. I recycle. Um, and so there's this resistance we have. Like, God, no, I'm, I am seeking God. I am doing good things. I am doing nice things. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, the way I would paint the picture is this. Of course people seek God, but there's a way in which we seek God in which we're not really seeking Him in and of Himself. We're just kind of wanting His stuff, right? Um, like the, the parable of the prodigal son is a great example of this. You have the younger brother that goes off and lives wild, and you have the older brother who when the younger brother comes back, the older brother won't join in the father's party. And the, the older brother is like, I'm not going in there to party with this younger brother. I'm not going to forgive him. And how dare you, Father, blessing him when I've slaved all these years and you haven't blessed me, and you, and you see this slaving works mentality that the older brother has. So often we seek God, but we're seeking God really just wanting to get stuff for ourselves. And so 
true seeking of God only happens in response to God seeking us. Uh, and my wife and I had put in our wedding rings 1 John 4.19, which is we love because he first loved us. And we came from broken homes. We knew that we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, right? So we were kind of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, like God, help us. And we know that the only way we can even love another person at all is because you loved us first. And another way you could say it with this word, seeking, is God, the only way we would ever seek you is because you sought us first in Jesus. The only way we would ever do good is because you did good to us first in Christ. And so any real good that we do, any real seeking that we would do would be in response. But in and of ourselves, as we are naturally, we're just like pagans. No matter how many times you come to church, all people are the same. We all seek selfishness. We don't really do good. We're, we're broken people. And again, we want to speak up and we say, no, no, but I do good more than them, right? But that's Paul's whole point here is doing good more than them is not enough good. None of us is just, just good, right? Only Jesus is, is truly good. Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, and he starts asking him questions, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God. It's an interesting response for Jesus to give. Well, we would say that Jesus was good. That's why we need Jesus. I grabbed a picture of uh, archery here, bullseye. How many of you shoot, shoot bows and arrows, guns, you, you shoot targets? Sometimes you hit a bullseye, right? Do you hit a bullseye every single time? Anybody here hit it every single time, right? So the standard for humanity is we hit the bullseye every single time. We never miss. Got a target in there. Some guys took me shooting on post, and I was just happy that I hit the target sometimes, right? Um, But some of us are better than others. But again, in the economy of God, having a, a better target practice than the next guy doesn't make you God. It doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you perfect, right? God has designed us to image him, to love people perfectly, to always make the right decision, to be self-controlled, to give ourselves, to love other people, just to be everything he's made us to be. And none of us hit that bullseye every time. We miss the mark. We miss the goal. And Paul is trying really hard to help us to see that, you know what, religious people miss the goal too. Is it good to keep some of the law? Yeah, it's good to keep some of the law. But but keeping a little bit more law than our pagan neighbor doesn't make us holy. We're all unholy in comparison to a holy God. Read Isaiah 6, where God comes to Isaiah, a prophet, who must have been a pretty holy guy to be a prophet, right? And he's just undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. When he sees God, it just melts him. And that's typically the response of people when they see God in his holiness. They're just like, I'm not, I'm not worthy, right? I don't, I don't measure up. And that's, again, what Paul's trying to help us to see here. Um, so none of us have done good. None of us is really righteous. No one really seeks God just for God's sake. Um, religious people like you and I miss it. We miss the mark. Does God want us to keep the law? Does God want us to do good things? Yes. But He wants us to do those things in response to what He's done for us. Not thinking that doing good things can win God's approval. Obey because we're accepted, not obey to become accepted. Love because we're loved, not love to earn love. It's a very different, very different paradigm. Completely different paradigm. And I'd argue that every religion in the world is basically do these things to be accepted. And Christianity is the one that is different in that way. It says, no, you're accepted. Free gift of grace. Now follow me. Now follow me. Trust me. 
So the next thing that Paul shows us is that every part of our lives misses. Um, and so he's going to kind of go through a laundry list. Again, uh, it's kind of negative, sorry, just saying how bad we really are, right? And he uses some poetic language to say the things we say are bad, the things we walk out in our lives are bad, the things we do are bad, the things we feel are bad. Just kind of trying to cover the totality of human beings here in verses 13 through 18. So every part of our lives misses. And this is in contrast to a belief that we often have that you've may, you may never have spoken, but I think this is a pretty common subconscious belief that there's a part of you that's holy. Um, so we tend to think, well, there's this part of me that's out of control, and then there's this part of me that's holy. Like if you're a warm, sentimental person, you might think, uh, well, these parts of my life are out of control and sinful, but when I'm warm, that's like the good me. And maybe I can be warm and loving and kind and compassionate, and that can overcome the bad in my life. Um, and the Bible would say, well, no, that part of you is broken too. Or maybe you're a thinker, right? And you think, well, if I just uh, think clearly and I make good decisions and I don't get caught up in my emotions, then maybe I can have this pure part of me controlling that broken part of me, which is actually a danger in our circles, uh, we're Bible church. That means we value studying the Bible. We value clear thinking. We value doctrine. And, and so one of the dangers that we can fall into in our kind of brand of Christianity is thinking that we can think our way out of our sin problem. Thinking, well, if I just study more, I can whip this sin, right? Well, no, even our thinking is broken. Even our thinking is poisoned by sin. The doctrine is called total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as depraved as you could be. Total depravity means every part of your life has some depravity there. It's poisoned, right? Every aspect of our world is, is corrupted. That's what total depravity means. It doesn't mean we're all Hitler. It means we've all, we've all got that potential. We've all got that kind of potential. So every part of our lives misses verses 13 through 18. Verse 13 says, Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Uh, their throat is an open grave. Obviously, this is metaphorical, right? He's not meaning there's actually dead bodies in your mouth or there's a fungus. He's talking metaphorically about the kinds of words that you speak. You speak um, deadness. Uh, you say harmful things. There's a sickness. There's a corruption. I, I grabbed a picture. If you're easily grossed out, you might want to not look at this. Uh, I grabbed a picture of roadkill. Uh, it's a dead armadillo. I was kind of trying to go for something that would make you squirm a little bit, but it wouldn't be too much to make you run out of the room. So I was trying to go, go for a balance here. Um, and I was thinking about how when we see roadkill, we often see it while we're driving in the car going 70 miles an hour, right? I mean, most of the time, you see it like, oh, poor dead animal, you know, and you drive by. Have you ever been walking down a busy road and come across it? That's a whole other level, Right. When you're up close to it, it's, re- it's much more revolting. You can smell it, and you're like, well, uh, it's horrible. And, and so Paul's purposefully using gross-out terms here, and he's stealing it from the Psalms and from Isaiah. He's quoting the Old Testament that, again, is using purposefully grossing-out terms that are revolting, um, sensory overload for us. of like, oh, that's horrible. And, and we want to recognize that, that horrible things come out of us. It's really, it's really helpful. It's really painful And it it causes us to want to despair sometimes, but it's also really helpful and helps us to see the grace that God has for us when we recognize that there's there's bad stuff in us. Have you ever said something to somebody and you just regretted it instantly? Or maybe you're like me, say something to your spouse and you don't regret it for like 
12 hours, and then you realize you're an idiot, and then later you regret it, right? Because at first you just think everything I say is great, you know? And then you realize, no, I've, I've hurt someone, and there are bad things coming out of me. And, and I'm even a professional nice person, right? Like, I'm nice for a living, and I still say bad things. And, and so Paul's trying to say we're, every part of us is corrupt. Um, I, I wanted to, I highlighted here the different aspects, too, to just help you to see, yeah, every, every part of me is corrupt. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 14, we already saw that roadkill in the mouth. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. So not just what we say, but you know, what we do. Head, heart, hands. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. So getting into what we know, how we live, our minds, our thoughts. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so here he's trying to help us to see how deep it goes and that every part of our life is, is stained, is corrupted. I have a quote here that I think is really helpful and I forgot to share it this morning, so y'all are getting bonus material for the evening service, okay? Yeah. Um, Tim Keller was talking about hell and how as modern people were revolted by hell um, and he has this interesting paradigm where he was like, Yes, hell is not necessarily physical fire, right? There's a sense in which the fires of hell is a metaphor, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It's actually realer and more horrible. Is realer a word? It's more horrible than literal fire. So his point is, it's a metaphor for something more horrible than we can imagine. So metaphor doesn't mean not real. Metaphor means it's worse. It's worse than that. And he was talking to someone. He says this, Uh, I found that only stressing the symbols of hell, fire and darkness and preaching, rather than going into what the symbols refer to, which is eternal spiritual decomposition, decay, that actually prevents modern people from finding hell as a deterrent, right? So Jesus talked about hell all the time because it's real. And Jesus is like, you don't want to go to hell. Hell's bad. It's horrible. And so Keller's point is we shouldn't be afraid to talk about hell. Jesus talked about hell. But for modern people, we want to help them understand that it's even worse than just fire. It's deeper than that. He says it this way. Some years ago, I remember a man who said that talk about the fires of hell simply didn't scare him. It seemed too far-fetched, even silly. So this intellectual guy, Keller's talking to you, is like, yeah, fires of hell seems kind of silly. So Keller said, well, let me read to you this passage from C.S. Lewis. And I'm quoting Keller, quoting C.S. Lewis, okay? C.S. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumbling mood always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God's sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So Lewis's point and Keller's point is, is that hell is in us. It is, it's creeping in us. This corruption, this decay is in us. And as Paul's quoting these, these things from the Psalms and from Isaiah, um, he's quoting things that a Jew on a first reading would have said, yeah, he's talking about the pagans. But when you actually study Isaiah and study the Psalms, you recognize, no, it's all humanity. And Paul certainly is using it in this context to say it's not just the pagan bad people. Remember how 
Paul has proceeded. He started in chapter 1 to talk about the kind of obvious, grotesque rebellion and immorality of pagan people. And so all of us religious people are like, yeah, Paul, go get them. They're sinful. And then Paul turns the guns on us and says, and you are just as bad. And that same immorality and that same decomposition lives in every single one of us, which means we can't save ourselves by being better than our sinful neighbor. We must just throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. Only Jesus can save us. None of us can save ourselves. None of us are strong enough. That decomposition, that death is at work in all of us. So what's the area of your life, by by way of application, what's the area of your life that you tend to think is outside the reach of that hell? There's no creep of hell in your life, right? It it might be thinking. It might be being a warm, comforting person. It might be a a get-or-done kind of person, right? Like you just... You're efficient, you can get things done, and other people can't get those things done. Recognize that even those gifts that you have can be corrupted. And that doesn't mean we throw away our gifts, right? We like to say a lot around here that we want you to grow deep and reach out. And what we mean by that is the deeper you grow in the knowledge of God's grace in your life, you will naturally reach out with the gifts you've, you've got. So, so you're not going to throw away your gifts. It's just recognize that even your gifts are corrupted, and we can only use our gifts when we acknowledge that they're gifts from God. They're not ours right? It's nothing that we can do. So in First Peter 4, when he talks about the gifts that we share, he says, if you're a speaker and you're gifted in the words you say, speak as if you're speaking God's words and not your own. Because if you start to think it's you, that's when it all falls apart. And if you're a doer that's really good at serving and getting things done, serve with the strength that God provides. Because if you're starting to think it's your strength and not God's strength, then it's all over with. And so as we relinquish that back to the Lord and say, it's your gift, Lord, then he sets us free to to run with reckless abandon, to actually use our gifts for for his glory. The last section that Paul gives us is that the law diagnoses the miss, right? So we miss. We miss the target. We miss the mark. We miss the goal. We don't measure up to the image that God has made us to produce. And the law doesn't actually fix us. The law just shows us, yeah, you missed right? So here we are. We're the people that have God's instructions, and we need to be careful that we don't fall prey to the idea that, well, I'm the person that sits in the room and listens to God's instructions, therefore I'm cured. That's different than actually entrusting yourself to the gospel. Jesus is the cure, not not the instructions. The instructions are important. Again, don't hear me saying, don't follow God's instructions. No, we want to follow God's instructions. Teach your kids to follow God's instructions. Do what's right. Read Proverbs. Obey God's law, but know that you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. You need Jesus' work in your life. So look at verse 19 and 20. And 19 and 20, it says that this way we know, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Uh, And so he said before that pagans without this form of God's law still have some form of God's law in their heart, know what right and wrong is. So all humans are guilty towards God's law, right? So those of us that have the specific instructions, in a sense, are more guilty because we know more. And then those that don't have these instructions are still guilty because all human beings have a general knowledge, natural law of of right and wrong. So here he says, those of us that know the law are under the law, and so every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So several years ago, 
Um, when I was a younger man, I was playing flag football uh, at a church flag football game, and I broke my ulna, the bone right here on your wrist. I played tackle football for years, never broke a bone. Then I'm playing flag football with a bunch of church guys, a bunch of middle-aged people, uh, and I guess I just went a little too hard and, and broke a bone. And I'd never broken a bone before, so I wasn't really sure. You know, it hurt really bad, but I kept playing, and it kept hurting, and I was like, it just hurts. Man, it hurts bad. It hurts really bad, you know? And so finally, I went in to see the doctor. When I went into the doctor, they gave me an x-ray. X-rays are these magical machines that can see inside your body, right? And so you can get an x-ray, and it can see if there's a, a break in your uh, bone. Mine actually wasn't quite that bad. Mine was more of just a crack. I just Googled broken ulna on, uh, on the computer. But the x-ray that I got from the doctor, what did the x-ray do for me? Very good, yes. You're paying attention to the main point. It diagnosed, right? Did it cure the problem? It didn't cure it. It diagnosed it. Okay, I'm broken. I know for sure I'm really broken. I thought at first I might be broken. Now I know I'm broken. And that's what God's law does for us. It diagnoses us. It doesn't fix us. It doesn't mend us. Only Jesus can mend us. Only Jesus' work on the cross, dying for us, taking our sin upon himself, giving us his resurrection life, sending the Holy Spirit to live with us, to rebuild us. That's what mends us. That's what fixes us. That's what knits us back together. So it's very important to see because we can start to think and pride ourselves on, I'm the person that knows what God wants. And there are these people over here that just ignore what God wants, but I pay attention to what God wants and I try to do what's right. And I should get some credit for that, right? And so I'm the person that's doing what's right and this other person, they're not doing what's right. And that makes me better than them. And there's this comparison thing that starts to happen. But again, Paul is nailing down, no one is justified in God's sight by doing the law. Verse 20, for by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's two ways that most commentators take this phrase, through the works of the law. One phrase is how we often think of it as doing good things, right? Obeying commandments, that's how I often talk about it. Some people, when they read the ancient literature, also think that it's taken in more of a social sense, that some Jews saw works of the law as the boundary markers of just being in the right club. And I would say those are kind of both... Two, coin, two sides of the same coin, in a sense. So you can think of yourself as being righteous, justified before God because of the list of your accomplishments, right? I was nice, I paid my taxes, I mowed my lawn, I did good things. Or you can think of it as I'm in the zone or the realm or the tribe of good people, right? I belong to the right country, I live in the right neighborhood, I have these kinds of parents. And so when we read the ancient Jewish literature, we kind of see both. And I'd say they're both forms of a merit righteousness other than Jesus, of saying, I'm saved because I'm a part of the right group, or I'm saved because I've done the right things. They're just two different versions of trying to be saved in an alternate manner, being saved basically by your flesh, by the flesh of, I'm in the right group, I'm in the right family, or by the flesh of, look at what I've done. But Paul's saying, no human can be saved that way. No human is actually made righteous by being in the right family. No human is actually made righteous by doing some good things. We're only made righteous by what Jesus did for us, by who he is. And so Jesus, the, the salvation that he offers, combines those two strains as well. In Jesus, we're in the right tribe. Later on, Paul's going to talk about Romans chapter 5. We're all either in the family of Adam or in the family of Jesus. 
So if you think of salvation in terms of who you belong to, social structure, family, tribe, Jesus is the answer. Only Jesus did everything right, always loved the way he should, was always brave, always made the right decisions, always said the right things. So if you think of salvation according to accomplishment, again, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the right group to belong to. We're in Christ, and Jesus is the one who's accomplished the salvation that we could not accomplish. So Paul's whole point, what he's leading to, what we're going to hit hard next week, is that this justification or being seen as righteous is not something we achieve through things we do, but it's a gift given to us in Christ. And then that flows out into things we do, right? Faith apart from works is dead. So don't just say, I believe, and then never change. That entrusting yourself to him is transformative. He's going he's gonna to blow up your life. And you're going to start wanting to do what he says. You're not going to magically become perfect and just do everything right tomorrow, right? But as you entrust yourself to him, you're going to more and more have your heart won over by him and begin to trust that what he says is right. And at first you might think, I'm not sure if I believe in the Christian ethics about this subject or about that subject. But the more he wins over your heart, the more you're going to say, yeah, that's right. That's what I want. And as we walk in community together, we help each other out to actually obey what he tells us to do. So as we wrap up uh, here, this phrase is really interesting. He says, um, so that every mouth may be stopped. Um, I don't know if you've ever been around kids where you have some kind of explosion or broken glass or tears or crying, and you run into the other room, and one kid is hysterical, and one kid is calm. And so you ask the calm kid, hey, what happened? And what does the calm child do? The calm child mounts a defense, right? Well, I didn't, but he, and I told him not to, and, right? And that's what, what happens. Um, and, and you want to just say, shut your mouth, right? Stop defending yourself. And we often do the same thing before God. God says, you're not holy. And we want to say, but I'm holier than that other guy. But look at that. Look at what this person did, right? And, and he says that every mouth will be shut, And what's really interesting is this is such a huge contrast with Jesus, right? So Jesus is the one who could speak up, but he kept his mouth shut, right? Isaiah 53 says it this way. Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus did everything right, He had every right when he came before the judge's bench to speak up, but he kept his mouth shut to take your punishment and to take my punishment. Whereas the contrast is those of us that have done everything wrong, we're mounting a defense. We're speaking, we're saying stuff, we're wagging our our tongues. Our mouth should be stopped. Again, we should come to that line of maybe not complete despair, but giving up on ourselves, giving up on our own defense, and entrusting ourselves to Jesus, who kept his mouth shut, who took our punishment in our place, who died the death that we deserve and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. So I encourage you to entrust yourself to him. He's worth it. He loves you. He loves me. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you proved your love to us by giving yourself for us. And I pray that that would stop our mouths, that we would no longer try to mount a defense but we would instead entrust ourselves to you, recognizing that we've missed the goal, but you have, you've nailed it. We thank you for that. 
We thank you for what you've accomplished for us. And we pray that it would, it would change us, that it would remake us, help us to trust you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.